Hey everyone, welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecrack's movie podcast. Show me the meaning! <laughs> my name is Jared, I'm joined here by my co-host Ryan. Hey film fans! And Austin. Hey, what up? So, this week we are breaking down the 2003 Korean film Old Boy, directed by Park Chan-wook. And uh, this is a really special movie to me. I've seen it many, many times. Uh, but as always, let's go around the room and first of all... Just want to say before we actually get first impressions, spoiler fucking alert. <laughs> if you haven't seen the movie, go see the movie, then come back and listen to this because we are going to ruin the shit out of it. And this is one of those movies that you don't want to have spoiled for you. Amen. Um, so let's uh, get some first impressions. Let's start with Ryan. Um, well, uh, um, damn, what what is there not to say? A++++, plus plus plus, uh, best revenge movie ever made. <laughs> Um, Park Chan-wook is a goddamn maestro of film, audio, visual, everything, cinema. He's the man. Um, Yeah, I'm sure we'll break this down in detail, but, I mean, I can't say enough amazing things about this movie. Classic of the 21st century. And how is it, like, uh, you know, I I always ask this question, and sometimes you guys don't remember what it was like to watch it for your first time, but I do feel like, since this is so dependent on a dramatic twist at the end, do you remember the first time you've seen it, and what is it like watching it since the first time you've seen it? Oh, and yeah. specifically the last time you've seen this it. This is one of those movies. There's a it's a small list, but like literally every time you watch this, you 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 notice new things, new new ways that they set or, or just ways that, interesting ways they set up the big twist at the end. Yeah, so like every time I'm watching this, I'm like, oh my god, yeah, that that correlates to that at the end and stuff like that. Um, so I get something new out of it every time I've seen it. I've seen it several times now, but yeah, the first time I watched it, I, I it had not been ruined for me. And when I got to the end, I definitely was floored at the fucking <laughs> batshit insane twist. Yeah. All right, Austin, what about you? Yeah, same. I this is the first. Park Chan-wook film that I saw. And basically it was recommended to me by a buddy of mine, Troy, who was like, dude, it's got this fucking long take where there's a guy who fights like 50 dudes with a hammer. He's like, you gotta fucking see this movie. And so I was like, okay, that sounds pretty fucking awesome. So I saw it not really knowing much about Chan-wook, not really knowing much about um, like the revenge Genre, not knowing anything at all about the manga that this is very, I guess, loosely based upon. I kind of went in blind and I was like, oh my God, this is fucking amazing. This is amazing. And then the twist came in. It's like, oh my God. (laughs) You know, it just fucking kicked me in the ass. And then in subsequent viewings, I've seen it, let's say three times now since. It, um, it, it obviously, it still has a similar it still has an impact, but it's a very different impact because now you know what it's aiming to. So now you, like Ryan was just saying, you you pay attention to the the little clues that are dropped in there. And it's creepier now because, you know, as soon as he meets Mito in that sushi restaurant, you're like, oh, fuck. Like, do they make it obvious that she is who she says she or who she ends up being? And you're like, I don't know. And it's it, it's way creepier now. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but I just mean that it it gets under my skin a little bit more and gives me the heebie-jeebies because now you fucking know what it's aiming towards. So what about you, Jared? Yeah. Well, so the first time I saw this movie, I was alone in my room in high school. And I remember this is the first time where I was just by myself. And when the twist happened, I audibly almost screamed, holy (laughs) shit. And uh, that was just so powerful. And I loved the movie. And 
when I was in high school, I was kind of like the one kid who would watch things outside of whatever the Hollywood mainstream was pumping out. So I was kind of the show and tell kid. Every time I saw a movie that my friends weren't familiar with, I'd be like, oh my God, you guys have to come over and watch this. So that's kind of the reason why I've seen this movie so many times. I've seen this movie, I would probably say almost 30 times. Is this like your I, is this I, like your litmus test date movie? Like if you have a date and you oh, bring them over? Oh, fuck no. I'm not that much of a sicko. <laughs> no, I don't show it to women. It was just kind of like, you know, my bros. That's I'd show matrix. it to people in college. I'd show it to people in high school. And, you know, it was just kind of one of those things where <clears throat> I want to prove to somebody how powerful cinema is. I want to show them something and watch them shit themselves mm. <laughs> and, and, and watch them just get so engrossed, so captured by the way that this movie moves, how it sounds, the uh, the cinematography, everything about this movie is so captivating. And the thing that I would keep saying about this movie is having seen it upwards of 20 times, it captured me every time. Mm. Even though we, even though I know what was going to happen when uh, Lee Woo Jin is pointing with his green pointer to the violet box that has the album that reveals the twist, it's so well constructed every single time. Even though I know it's coming, I feel the tension. I feel like we're and, still being secretive about the twist, even though we said spoilers. I mean, can, should we just all say it at once? Like what the twist well, is? Well, I'm going to go into a recap. <laughs> Mido and I just figured, is, her, is his daughter. <laughs> yeah. Mido is his daughter. When you find that out. Yes, yes. All right. So I love the shit out of this movie. I think that... Um, one thing I'm excited to talk about this is similar to what you guys were saying is that I was really able to focus this time on how unique the construction of this movie is mm. and how some of the audio and visual and cutting choices are so masterful. And, you know, that's just one level. We can talk a whole nother level about themes, revenge, truth, the whole Oedipal thing going on. So we're going to hopefully get to all that. So without further ado, let me go into a quick recap. Uh, but actually before that, I want to remind you guys that since we are announcing the next movies we're going to do, the next movie we're going to do is we're going to do David Cronenberg's classic, Videodrome. Oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> so, <clears throat> Long so live be the sure new flesh. Long live the new flesh. If you haven't seen it, uh, be sure to check the description of this podcast. We're going to list uh, ways that you can watch it streaming and such and so forth. So uh, be on the lookout for that and watch it along with us. I promise it will blow your mind. All right. So on to the recap. Average salaryman Odesu got too wasted one night, making his best friend Juwan pick him up from jail and chaperone him home to his wife and daughter. But Desu never makes it home. Juwan turns his back for a second, and Desu has simply disappeared. Desu wakes up in a hotel-inspired prison. He has no idea where he is, why he is there, or for how long. The television in the room tells him that his wife was murdered and that he is the prime suspect. After multiple suicide attempts, Desu starts chronicling every bad thing he's ever done and vows vengeance to whoever imprisoned him. After 15 years, Desu is hypnotized and mysteriously released on top of a building. With the help of Juwan and a friendly sushi chef named Mido, Desu starts his search for the truth. Desu's captor eventually reveals himself and says that if he doesn't discover why he was imprisoned in five days, he'll kill Mido. If he does discover the truth, however, he will kill himself instead. Mido and Desu have sex and eventually discover that Desu's captor is Lee Woo Jin, a former high school classmate of Desu's. In visiting his alma mater, Desu remembers that he once witnessed Woo Jin having sexual relationships with his sister. After Desu started the rumors, Woo Jin's sister couldn't take it anymore and killed herself. 
Daesu confronts Woo Jin with the truth. He was imprisoned because Woo Jin was in love with his sister, and Daesu's big mouth led to her eventual suicide. But little does Daesu know that Woo Jin's revenge is far from over. Woo Jin points Daesu to a photo album revealing the climax of Woo Jin's revenge scheme. Mido is Daesu's daughter. <gasps> <gasps> Desperate to keep Mido from the truth, Daesu cuts out his tongue to appease Wu Jin, and Wu Jin kills himself because now that his revenge is complete, he has nothing to live for. Mido and Daesu find the hypnotist and ask her to erase his memory of Mido as his daughter. The final shot shows Daesu embracing Mido as he emits an ambiguous smile that turns into a frown. Has he successfully forgotten, or will the monster that Wu Jin has created always be with him? End of movie. Hmm. God damn. Yeah, it's a powerful one. So before we start breaking down the themes, I do want to spend some time talking about just how masterfully this movie is constructed. Mm. And one of the things that I noticed through this viewing that I hadn't noticed before is the masterful use of narrative economy and how that connects with comedy. And when I say comedy, we don't usually think of Old Boy as a funny movie. I mean, this is one of the darkest, most fucked up movies ever made, but... I think really the only way that you can actually achieve that very serious tone and really capture people is if you level it out with some comedy. And once again, most people who have seen this movie are probably thinking to themselves, comedy, that's not the fucking movie I saw. That movie is not funny. It's 100% fucked up. But there are some really masterful, efficient, interesting ways in which the movie tells a story in a very captivating and efficient way while also implementing some comedy. So let me give you an example. So there is a scene where Desu is clued in that he has to go to a barber shop to meet this woman who is also one of his old school classmates. And then she reminds him of what happened to Lee Woo Jin's sister. So first of all, all this cutting is extremely efficient. We just see the bells ring above the door. Then we see the woman's face. Then we see Desu's face. And then we see her pointing her finger in the air like she's on the brink of remembering Desu's face. And then it immediately just cuts to him in a hairnet and hammock and her gabbing on. I think this is so brilliant because instead of seeing the whole scene play out with like, oh my God, oh Desu, I remember you now. Like, it's been so long. How are you? All we have is a cut. And it's a funny cut because mm. we now see this guy who is dead serious, bent on revenge. And now he's in a silly hairnet and a hammock, like he's getting some sort of a perm. <laughs> and right. I think that and we know narrative economy, yeah, narrative economy through comedy in a movie as dark as this is a masterstroke. Mm. And it's something that I had never really realized before, but I think is one of those things that you don't really think about, but really makes this movie the masterpiece that it is. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to just bounce around, but the scene that when you were talking about the the comedy in the film that immediately jumps out to me is when Desu is telling his story to the man on the roof with the dog. Yeah. <laughs> and then right and then right when the dude is about to reciprocate and tell his story, he just fucking Desu just bails. <laughs> yeah. And, just walks away. Yeah. Yeah. He just fucking takes off. And then the other dude's like, hey, like what the hell, man? You know, little things like that, they matter because they, they break up the monotony of, of something that's too heavy because then it just turns into melodrama and you need those variations of emotions so that the the sort of drama will impact you even more so that you're not just sitting there clenching yourself all the time and bracing for the next thing. It allows you to relax a little bit so that the next moment's more shocking. Yeah. And, and similar to like the last episode with when we were talking about Martin Scorsese, I mean, Park Chan-wook's another dude, like I was saying before, that 
that really utilizes not only the cinematography, but like you're saying, every cut matters almost always. And then, uh, uh, and then he has the weird ass, just kind of floating cinematography. Um, but yeah, he's totally, and then the sound, there's always these, um, you know, you're hearing voiceover, or you're hearing the thoughts from Desu as like like someone will ask him a question, then you'll hear his thought, the answer to that, and then he'll then he'll actually give an answer in real life, and just things like that that are always happening. It's just he's constantly keeping you on your toes and constantly you know not treating the audience like idiots and kind of like you know like you said when you see that cut, you know exactly what happened. You don't have to see that whole conversation, and it's funny on top of all that, and it pr- progresses the story. So yeah, he's just a fucking master. Well, yeah, it's and amazing, he, and he breaks all the cinema rules, right? Like he uses jump cuts like crazy. He uh, doesn't give a shit about the 180-degree rule. Um, he is totally fine with with using camera techniques and, of course, audio techniques, but in particular camera and visual techniques and visual cues and wide-angle lenses and to to create an aesthetic vibe that is always kind of quirky, you know? But it But it does service, the formal does service to the content. And it really does help, you know, and, and and it's what is the earmark of someone who is a filmmaker in control as opposed to someone who's either just throwing shit at the wall or maybe who's just a little bit lost in the possibilities of what one can do with the visual medium. Absolutely. I want to bring up one other example, and I don't want to dwell on this too much, but I am going to bring up the Spike Lee remake. I don't want to talk about it too much, <clears throat> but it's a great I recommend that people hate watch it if hate watching is something that you like to do because it really highlights why the original is so good and I guess why Spike Lee didn't realize why the original was so good. So Mm. this goes back to my uh, discussion about narrative economy. In the uh, 2003 Old Boy, the one we're talking about, when Daesu gets out of prison and goes to meet his best friend Juwan again, it's three shots. It's Juwan is just in his internet cafe. Desu approaches him, says his name. It immediately cuts to Juwan crying and hugging him (laughs) for like a second. And then it cuts to them talking and he had just told Juwan his whole story. Mm. The whole thing lasts like seven seconds and we just experienced in an interesting, engaging, and very telling way, we just experienced these people, best friends reuniting. He probably thought that Desu was dead after 15 years. And mm-hmm. in the Spike Lee one, this scene is so bad. We see date we see whatever the character's name in the fucking American one is. We see Desu knock on the door. We see his Josh friend Brolin. open the door. Yeah, we see Josh Brolin open the door and then his friend opens the door and he goes, "Oh my god, Desu, I haven't seen you in so long. Where have you been, man? I've been so worried." Not mm. necessary. It's cringeworthy and this is uh, and, and actually, I'm wondering, have you, any of you guys, are you familiar with the graphic novel at all? Because I'm wondering I'm not, how no. much of this very efficient narrative economy is him just taking panels from the graphic novel. Uh, I mean, yeah, I don't I know. It, yeah, I know about it only from reading secondary commentaries or like analyses of the film that have talked about how different the film actually is. Like apparently it's it's so loosely based on the manga that it's not really even an adaptation. Okay. You know, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's like, yeah, there's a guy who wants revenge on a guy, but it's for a completely different reason. Um, the way that he kills himself at the end is very different. The twist is different. So it's just very loosely based on this revenge uh, tale that has some similarities, but I think he took a lot of creative license. 
Because I often think about how in a graphic novel, a lot of time, this same sense of narrative economy can be achieved through the juxtaposition of panels. Mm -hmm. And uh, Park Chan-wook kind of achieves a similar thing with the juxtaposition between shots and telling a story in a very entertaining, effective, efficient way. I mean, even if it's not intentional, the thing that's so interesting is, is I was trying to to think, especially in relation to the films that we've seen over the past few weeks. And so I was thinking Spring Breakers, and then in particular, I, I was thinking a little bit about Star Wars, but not really, but Spring Breakers, Wolf of Wall Street, and now this. And last week when we were talking about the relation between Spring Breakers and Wolf of Wall Street, the only thing that I was, or not the only thing, but one of the things that kept kind of uh, revisiting my thoughts was the difference between poetry and prose. And I don't mean that in the sense of like exposition, but I feel like The Wolf of Wall Street is a work of prose, whereas like Spring Breakers is a work of poetry. And I feel like this is of another work of poetry. Like, yeah, it's got that element of prose to it, but it isn't It isn't a typical narrative in the way that we're accustomed to, especially in, in you know, Hollywood filmmaking, you know, three-act structure. And, you know, it's got like these very particular beats, you know, on page 10 and they're like, between the 10 and 12 minute marks, this is going to happen. And at the 20 minute mark, this is going to happen. It doesn't have that shit. It's, it's very episodic. Um, it bounces around a little bit. Um, it's jarring. And it does, maybe the better way to view it rather than poetic is a sort of like, it's a visual graphic novel because it is maybe using that paneling that you're talking about. Um, but that's just because that's such uh, such a thing that is part and parcel to Park Chan-wook's background. And obviously if he's doing an adaptation, however loose it is, that it is going to be inspired by the sort of ethos and the aesthetic of the graphic novel. So it's like a poetic visual graphic novel. And more to the point of poetry, I want to spend a second talking about the music and the rhythm of this movie. I talk a lot oh, about yeah. rhythm and uh, I, I hope that I've been mm. able to communicate what I'm talking about. But so on the first hand, let's just talk about the music. Um, I don't know what else to say other than that it's so good. This movie, mm. the the minute this movie, or the second this movie starts, you're hearing a driving string ensemble that crescendos out of the title sequence, and bam, we see a guy being dangled off a fucking roof by his tie. I mean, it just grabs you by the balls immediately. But there's also yeah. something, there's like a very melodic quality, not only to the music, but to the speech. And I don't speak a word of fucking Korean, but mm. you can hear the rhythm of Woo Jin's speech, the rhythm of Desu's uh, monologues, they're beautiful. I, I, I mean, like, am I the only one that got that? Oh, hell no. Yeah, I mean, the, well, for the, 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 the music that you're talking about at the beginning, is that's kind of like the theme song to the first act, right? Because they play that at the very beginning, and yeah, like it has that, it, it's this super driving, energetic song, and then they basically bring it back, because remember, they, they, they st you start out on the roof with him dangling the dude, then you get the whole... 20-minute long explanation of, of how he got there. Then you get that song again, that fucking driving song, like, oh, shit, he's about to uh, uh, throw this guy off. And then you cut to that joke scene that, uh, that Austin was just talking about that completely, in my opinion, just takes the energy of that song and then just kind of, set, like, not throws it away, but just... It, you know, it caps it off with a joke that's saying like, okay, this guy is still kind of an asshole at, even after 15 <laughs> years. So yeah, the, it, 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 he does an amazing job of, of building up suspense, but also undercutting it to where you know where the characters are at at the same time. And yeah, I don't know who made the, the music, but it, they're amazing. I mean, it's got to be an editor's dream. Yeah, Ryan? Oh yeah. Having just, well, you know, it's funny you say that because the second time 
there's a really weird shot the second time that that song starts, and then it's it's basically where the guy with the tie ha- or the guy with the, the dog at the top of the building, he like you can tell he's about to just flip himself off the building. And then you see Dezu, the, the, the song stars, you see Dezu's head, but then he just, he goes out of the shot for a second to where you just see the sky, you know? So there's like mm. this long, like five, 10 seconds shot of just the sky where this awesome song is playing and you don't see anything, but you still feel the tension. You know that he's holding a guy off a roof probably, or the guy's just d- died. Either way, it's still super tense. Oh yeah, but, but even <clears throat> after the 30th time that Jared's seen so it. So I, I, I read, that as he exits the frame and for like a split second you're not sure if Daesu went off the top of the building with him I, I thought that that, oh, li- really? that lingering on the sky was why that was tense at, at least to me mm. interesting see to me it was did he catch the guy or not because to me it was always obvious that he was going after him like like I didn't see why why would he jump off too or just I mean, that he just might jumped. have fallen in an attempt to catch him or something like that okay I gotcha either way you, you agree that the, the sting it's a bold choice that is going for something, right? Anytime that you have the subject completely leave the frame and we're just focusing on nothing is a bold choice, for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, have you, I, I don't want to take us too far afield, but have you guys seen The Handmaiden? Oh, yeah. I love that movie. That was. Oh, yeah. I did. The, the his form. newest movie. Yeah. Actually, Ryan and I saw it together. Um, I mean, I think that The Handmaiden is like the best made film I may have ever seen in my life. But Interesting. beyond <laughs> that, what Jared was just saying about the sort of the, the the poetic utterance of the Korean language. The thing that was so amazing is after having seen The Handmaiden where both Korean and Japanese are used, and if you're watching it in, or if you're listening and you want to see The Handmaiden, make sure you get a subtitled version that has uh, the two different colors used, that the Japanese is in one color and the Koreans in the other color. Because if you don't, you'll, you'll miss so much of what's going on because he is so interested in human language. And... I'm going to say it's because he studied philosophy in college, but, you know, who knows. Um, but uh, but Park Chan-wook, he is so interested in language. So now going back and watching Old Bai, I'm so glad you brought this up, Jared, because I was thinking about that, that there is something super interesting about, and I really wish I fucking understood the Korean language, because there's something really interesting about cadence, about uh, the acting performances, about what Ryan was talking about, how sometimes, like, voiceover is used to answer questions like it's an inner monologue, but... Nothing ever gets resolved through actual dialogue in the scene. Like sometimes he'll just answer it with his thoughts and then you're like, okay. But then they both just kind of like move on from there and you're like, did anything get resolved in that conversation or not? And it, there's something so interesting with his his willingness to play with the medium of communication that is so probably the most common for us and kind of, I don't know, do something really quite unique with it. It it's just sort of adds again to the stakes, to the tension, to the frenetic um, chaos of, of, of what's going on, but all filtered through this really interesting, streamlined revenge story. Yeah, the, the movie that I point to that has a similar quality that's an American movie is The Matrix. Uh, the, the difference between Hugo Weaving has uh, just a, a very specific, interesting cadence to his voice. Mm. Lawrence Fishburne, similarly, I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. You know, like, mm. it, 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 there, there is a rhythm to it that makes it really work. And that's something that... It's like the anti Aaron Sorkin, but it's like a similar, uh, it's like a similar discipline in that Aaron Sorkin is always trying to, he's creating tension through the rhythm, but it's usually a very fast paced rhythm of the dialogue. Whereas this is kind of the opposite. It's a more melodic way of communication that kind of creates this tone. That's uh, really yeah. awesome. 
Well, and it always makes me wonder, was that an acting choice or was it more Park Chan-wook or obviously a combination of the two? Was it built through rehearsal? And as someone who's interested in the sort of craftsmanship of film and who's really interested in the craftsmanship of, of performance, especially in the relation to um, the director and, and the producers and things like that, I'm always curious, you know, like like how much of it was a choice on the part of the actor? And I, I don't know the actor's name, the Ode Suze. Uh, what, uh, what's Choi Min-sik. He's fucking phenomenal. But Amazing. like little things, like eating the live octopus was something that was an actor's choice. Because apparently in real life, he's Buddhist and he's a vegetarian, but he decided to actually eat a live octopus for for the role. And that was a decision. Good for him. Yeah, that was a decision <laughs> that he made. And and I think that's kind of fucking badass, you know? Like, <laughs> you know, I know people like, like to give Shia LaBeouf shit for like pulling out his tooth and actually drinking moonshine on set of Lawless and getting into a fight and shit like that with Tom Hardy or whatever he's doing <laughs> on his various movies. But like, I dig that shit, man. Like, I dig it, dude. Like, get wild <laughs> with it, you know? And so I always, I wonder, is it Park Chan-wook who's just like this weird, masterful, like I'm in control of everything down to the cadence of voices? Or is it a combination of the two more so. I mean, I'm sure it's a combination, but I wonder. My which, guess, yeah. my guess is that he, 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 I mean, just judging by his whole body of work, I mean, he's a fucking auteur and I'm sure that he, you know, had his choice of any actor and, but yeah, they probably came to that together, but definitely yeah. more, I'd put it more on Park Chan. Yeah. There are so many things I have written down just uh, about craft <laughs> that I kind of want to blow through these so we can actually start talking about the themes. But one <clears throat> one other thing I want to bring up is I think it's such a an interesting, great decision in the way that we discover how, or we discover that Odesu has been imprisoned. So we see him, you know, we mm. see like the title sequence and whatever, and then it cuts to him looking out kind of the food hole, you know what I'm talking about? Like he's looking out into the hallway saying, why am I here? Just tell me how long it's going to be. And mm. we're watching this and we're saying like, wow, he's in prison. This is fucked up. How do you get in prison? And then after he's done begging the guy who gives him food for some some answers, it cuts to the inside of the prison and it looks like a hotel. And now we're just like, whoa. And the reason why I thought this was interesting is because there is a deleted scene where the audience actually sees Desu wake up in the hotel room and say like, oh my God, where am I? And I thought it was a really great decision to take that out. Hmm. Why do you, I mean, I, I agree, but I'm curious, why do you like that decision? Because the reveal. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting reveal uh, that we see, like we, we start with an exterior that makes it look like a regular prison. And then mm. all of a sudden we're taken back into the inside and we're like, wait a second, this doesn't look like a prison. This looks like a best Western. Mm. Yeah. This film is filled with those weird juxtapositions, isn't it? Like I noticed in this viewing, which I hadn't noticed previously, um, that there's a lot of like this, but also this, or both this and that, or it's like, is it this, but it's also, it also could be this. And there's always like this, there's the, there's the, this tension that's being explored between maybe supposed opposites or between things that we would think are in conflict, but they're brought together in this weird, uncomfortable tension. And, and even in that scene with just the, without going to the reveal of like the exterior harsh prison and the cold metal door, and then the little slot that he's sticking his head through to the hotel room, but even to how he's responding to the guy, he's like, he's like, you know, just give me fucking answers. And he's going mad. He's obviously hysterical. But then at the same time, he's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I won't do it anymore. And then he's like, fuck you, motherfucker, <laughs> you know? And it's like this weird back and forth of, um, I, I don't know, it's, 
it's going to sound super cliche if I say it because we're dealing with obviously an Eastern filmmaker and uh, he did study philosophy and, you know, I don't want to just go to Eastern philosophy, but there is that tension, right? That balance between the sort of uh, the yin and the yang or in, in the Taoist sort of notion of, of connectivity. And I don't know how much that cuts through in, in Korean culture, but it does seem that there's something there that's more, I don't know, it's, it's more comfortable resting with the tension. Yeah. The last thing I want to bring up is, <clears throat> so the two two things that are very serious scenes, very serious moments that I think are communicated in a really interesting way as to, I don't know, I don't know if I really want to say optimized comedy, but so the first thing I want to talk about is while he's imprisoned, he tries to kill himself three times and it's literally the most undramatic thing ever. You hear a smash <laughs> of broken glass, him bleeding on the floor and people just dragging him away in plastic. <laughs> Like, this right. is funny, right? This is funny. Like, it's, 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 I think that that's the only way you can tell a story as dismal and as grim as this is by trivializing some of the really important and heavy things and making it funny in a very, you know, it's not like laugh out loud slapsticky funny, but I, I yeah, I, I think that he's creating a tone that is so precise and really interesting. And, and the same thing goes with the hallway shot. Like, yeah, it's badass, but holy shit, like, after a while, we're kind of, like, laughing at how ridiculously badass this is. <laughs> you mean the hammer fight? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. When he's, like, literally just using them as bowling balls on, on each other and, uh, and knocking them all down, and then he gets a knife in his back and is still doing it. And then after yeah, he it's, whoops— it's not laugh out loud funny. It's just, like, the hmm under your nose kind of funny yeah. that you do. <laughs> it's like after he whoops all the guys in the hallway, he calls the elevator, and then when the elevator opens, he smiles, and then it just cuts to him on the ground floor with bodies just falling out of the <laughs> of the elevator. It's so good. Yeah. I, I will say the first several times I saw the movie, I did not understand that he was killing himself because <laughs> when he was punching the glass. Yeah. You know? It happens so it, quickly. It, it, it happens so quickly, and it's also kind of there's the repetition of the ants thing. So I was like, hmm, maybe every time he's getting gassed, he's also just punching this wall. But no, uh, but then I quickly got it, and I agree with you. Mm. All right, let's move on because we could talk about uh, the style and the craft of this film all day. But let's talk about the ending. What? How do you guys read this? And can we connect it at all to the line, if you laugh, the world laughs with you. If you weep, you weep alone. Which, what do you, what do you think that means? <laughs> well, it's just like if, if your life is shitty, if something horrible happens, you can either like, you know, be sad and you'll be sad alone or you can laugh at it and you'll have people laughing with you. I think it's pretty, I mean, that's, that's all I'm getting out of it. Yeah. No. Okay. I mean, it also kind of relates to your point a second ago with, with, you know, a, a fucking dismal movie like this, you know, kind of, why would it have these moments of comedy? I mean, I, I, cause I, cause I agree yes. with you too, that it's, that's actually a really yeah. interesting point because I do think that one of the main themes of the movie is forgetting that the only way, sometimes the only way to really free yourself of the pain is to forget to not pursue the truth. Um, and this kind of goes mm. more to the connection to Oedipus so um, for those of you that don't remember, Oedipus is the story of the king who, uh, you know, make a long story short, he uh, kills his father and marries his mother. And I'm sure Austin can probably speak more to how this has manifested itself in psychoanalysis. <laughs> um, but there are some similarities here. So Oedipus relentlessly pursued the truth against the advice of his wife. Similarly, um, 
Odesu pursues Lee Woo-jin at his penthouse against the advice of his girlfriend. Uh, when the truth is discovered, Oedipus st- stabs his eyes out with golden pins. Similarly, Desu cuts out his tongue. Um, Oedipus was mm. looking for Lias's killer, and it ends up being himself. Similarly, Odesu is seeking revenge, but it turns out his efforts were just part of someone else's grander revenge plot. And uh, the last thing I'll say is Oedipus pursues the truth, and it hurts him. Similar to Desu, but... I think that Oedipus can be read that pursuing the truth is possibly the only real freedom he has. So it was a good thing that he pursued the truth. But I think that in this movie, it's much more decidedly saying that pursuing the truth will not set you free and that sometimes the truth just unilaterally hurts. And if you pursue the truth, you'll just dig your own grave. And the only thing you can do when presented with the dismal truth is forget. Did, did you just do like a reverse biblical quote? Pursuing the truth will not set you free? Is yeah, that what's going yeah, on? Yeah, essentially. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, 100% what, what Park Chan-wook is doing here is he is creating a myth in the vein of Oedipus. I think he's even explicitly said that Oedipus was a big inspiration for this film. So, well, so and Count of Monte Cristo. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's that- the same story, too. Okay. Well, oh, yeah, 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 it, yeah. There's when Mido is chatting with uh, Wu Jin. Uh, like his screen name is the Count of Monte Cristo, so they're, the Count, they're right. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I mean, there's clearly you're supposed to like go into this with a heightened state of of reality, right? Like this is a myth, and and you're supposed to fully get involved in this sort of crazy dramatic stakes. The only difference I think, or not maybe not the only difference, maybe the, the linchpin difference between Oedipus and Old Boy for me is that Oedipus is really about fate, right? Because right. it's the oracle that tells Oedipus that this is what's going to happen. And so then what you get is you get a sort of, as you often get in, in the Greek tragedies, is you get a tale about, well, what does it mean to follow your fate? How much freedom do you have? And so there's that philosophical richness that's sort of undercutting Oedipus's journey. Whereas in this, there is no fate. There is no God. This is like a death of God version of Oedipus. Because what you get at the beginning, which I thought, again, really struck me this on this viewing— was this crazy radical freedom that creates this monster, right? So you get like this radical dissolution of all of the I- identity markers of Odesu's life. And what he becomes is this crazy, free, quote unquote, but bound, right? Bound to his revenge, but still free. So there's almost like a Sartre and you're condemned to be free kind of uh, uh, duplicity there, or not duplicity, but duality there. And, uh, and so what you get then is you get this revenge tale or this crazy sort of Oedipal type of tale, but without the the moorings that would guide one um, because the oracle or the fates are deciding so, where you just get this fucking chaotic, you don't know where it's going to go because you're not really in charge. And maybe if there is a god that's in charge, it's Wu Jin, you know, because he's the one that's got the money. He's the one that's got the power. He's the one that's pulling the strings. I, so I don't know if it entirely works, but at least from the part of, of Ode Sue is that he doesn't have the fates guiding him. And it's just all about this, his his condemnation to be this free monster that has no identity, that only has one solid purpose. And and in that sense, it kind of does mirror or at least echo uh, tangentially the Oedipus myth. I actually think that <clears throat> you're not giving yourself enough credit on the whole uh, Wu Jin as a god thing because I think that there's an interesting dynamic that is very reminiscent of Frankenstein in that there is a relation mm. between the creator and the creation. So mm. Li Wu Jin created the monster of Odesu. He is like Frankenstein's monster uh, mm. and now Desu is 
basically this abomination of a person. He can't live for anything except revenge because he is the monster that Wu Jin created. And, you know, Wu Jin is the prince in the high tower. He does have this kind of omniscience. First of all, he's so rich that he can seemingly do anything. And not only that, Mm. but he sits at the top of his tower and he has... He can seemingly see Odessu, whatever he's doing. He's got bugs and trackers on him. He, for 15 years, would just sit in his recliner and watch Odessu in the hotel. In a sense, I do think there is some sort of a relation between God and subject or creator and creation. Mm, that's really interesting because then, of course, God kills himself at the end, right? Right. Um, and so I wonder what's going on. Is that this sort of like if God only exists in relation to the subject and the subject only exists in relation to the object of God, when the, the binding agent is no longer there, which is this, this need for revenge, when that's no longer there, then is there a need for the subject object relation anymore? In which case, if there isn't, then God has to die or God does die. So God kills himself. So that's why Wu Jin kills himself. But then the monster's able to live and then that's what's interesting. Or or does the monster live is the question. If he gets rehypnotized and maybe transformed into a, another type of subjectivity and he creates a different type of subject-object relation with a different type of God then, um, if that's kind of what's going on, I don't know. But yeah, so it is mean, do, you, do you guys have that. a thought? Do you think that the monster lives or does he successfully mm. purge himself of it? Well... <laughs> First off, it's purposefully ambiguous, yeah, right? Yeah, we can all sure, agree on that. Sure. <laughs> I, I'm going to say that he, uh, uh, I'm going to say he forgets it because hypnotism works, right? It seemed to work the first time. <laughs> it worked, yeah. Out, yeah. In the movie, it works. So I'm going to say he forgot. So he does forget. So then, so then Ryan, he forgets and then he like wants to forget so he can be in an incestuous relationship with his daughter. Is that? Pretty much. Well, you know, it's, 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 he wants to be in the relationship, but also more importantly, he doesn't want to live with the baggage of knowing that he fucked his daughter too, you know, yeah. like, uh, I just don't think that more to the, the, one of the quotes is, even though I am no better than a beast, don't I have the right to live? And I think that mm. more so than the, the, him wanting to pursue the relationship with his daughter, I think it is just that he could never live with the truth. And so for, in order for him to live at all, he has to get rid of the beast. Right. Well, it's a very it's a very dire statement on on what a human is, though, isn't it? I mean, it's it, it's really it doesn't have the sort of positive trappings of the Greek myths, which were always trying to create higher ethical ideas of what the human was or what the polis was or whatever, right? Whereas this is kind of like you're just a fucking beast, but you deserve to live anyway. And uh, there is well, this real dire human human uh, humanism in it. There's also that quote from Wu Jin right before he kills himself, where he's like, you know, me and my sister loved each other against all the odds. You know, can 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 you and Mito uh, do the same thing? Mm. Um, so I don't know. I think that that's also kind of like a little seed that Park Jan Wook's like, maybe they're going to continue the relationship and and fall back in love. And yeah, I mean, I, the, the, the final mo- the final line of the movie is "I love you, Odessu." So I think we're and then he smiles, which ambiguously may have turned into a frown, but I, I do believe we're meant to think that the relationship will go on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we're, we're meant to think that the hypnotism works, but then the question is, is it, it goes back to that, that painting maybe that's in his prison. That's like that madman screaming, laughing, crying, whatever the fuck it's doing. You know, right. it's kind of like a Francis Bacon, a Korean version of a Francis Bacon painting or something. Um, 
you kind of, that's it. it. It's like the pain in the pleasure again. And that's, that goes back to that duality that I was thinking about earlier, that you can't have one without the other and that both sort of are always there all the time. You can't have a happy ending, you know? And you can't have just a pure dire ending either because sometimes it's fucking funny shit that takes place in the middle of tragedy. So right. yeah, the monster lives. The monster lives for sure, I think. Oh, you think the monster lives? Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no. The monster does not live, but there's still a, a sort of seed, if you will, of beast or monstrosity, let's say, that cuts through. That's the way that I would put it. Okay. Yeah. So I want to talk about, <clears throat> and I know we seem to talk about this a lot in the podcast, but I, I think this is uh, relevant, uh, is the relevance of Li Wujin being super rich and the fact that mm. uh, Desu is basically just a regular salary man. What so about mean, that? Yeah, well, yeah, on that the does one make hand, it more godlike, you know. Yeah, but is it, it is it relevant wants. that Desu, the salary man, he uses a hammer, you know, as his weapon, whereas Wujin, you know, literally uses money. And then there's also the guy who owns the prison. That guy's just trying to get by day by day. He's just trying to make ends meet. I mean, he forgoes revenge on the guy that took out all his teeth for a briefcase of cash, and then he trades his hand for a new building. I, I do think <laughs> that there is this element of there is a class element being explored here i don't know if it's necessarily moralizing or saying anything specific but i think i don't know i i there's also an element of i think it's more of a story function because it makes his revenge plot purer like you know he has everything he wants in the world you know he can do anything like material possessions don't really matter to him it's more it's it just it makes him not have to uh, need anything else but the revenge on Desu. You know? I mean, are we even supposed to think that Wu Jin only became as rich as he did so that he could have this power to get that? No, revenge? no, his family had money, is what they said. Uh, like, is what, oh, when they're right. investigating him at the high school, they're like, oh, yeah, that's he right, comes from a wealthy sister. family. Yeah, okay. But I do think that Wu Jin probably would not have done what he did if he wasn't so rich and so bored. And I do think maybe there's a commentary on kind of the ennui and emptiness of a life in which, you know, you're filled with excess. And I, I almost think like, you know, Wu Jin, like Desu is literally his plaything that he, yeah. you know, just, just using only money as his tool. He's literally able to just, I, I, Wu Jin is like a little hamster in a hamster cage for him that he just watches and lords over and once again, I don't think it's making any kind of anti-capitalist statement necessarily, but I just think it's interesting. I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on it. I do think, uh, you were saying a second ago, Austin, I do think it would have been almost better if if he had come from a poor family and then worked his ass off all his life just so that he could do the revenge, you know, and afford it. That would have mm -hmm. been kind of more fuel to his fire. But yeah, I, I, I don't, yeah, I don't know, Jared. And, yeah, and I mean, the only uh, time... I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just, I mean, there's definitely a ring of Gaijis thing going on here, right? Where if you What's have that? all the, if you have all the power in the world, would you use it for good or would you use it for evil? It's a, a story that Socrates told, um, I believe it's in the Republic, um, but it's a story that Socrates told about uh, Gaijis who finds this ring. And this is, you know, where the Lord of the Rings ultimately kind of is, is based off of as well. This ring that can give you the ultimate power, would you use it for good or would you use it for evil? So Wu Jin has that ring. You know, it's money. He's got infinite wealth. And would he use it for good or would he use it for evil? And does he use it for good or does he use it for evil? He uses it for revenge. Is revenge evil? I mean, he's torturing the fuck out of this guy. So, I mean, maybe there's something in that too, that power and absolute power corrupts and 
And if you are in that state of ennui because you are bored as fuck, because you have everything in the world, then you're going to find little pet projects so that you can wield your power over anybody. And in this case, maybe someone who's of a, a lower class than you. But I think that's kind of it's almost, it, it doesn't seem as central. I, I do I do side more with Ryan on this one in thinking that it's less about, and I know you mentioned this, Jared, but it's less about like a, a pure proletarian versus bourgeois class war. But but yeah, of course there's that, that's there because power struggles between classes exist beyond a sort of Marxian, Marxian framework as well too, right? So um, I think it, it goes even deeper than that. It's just about power versus the someone who doesn't have the power and power to to maximize what it is that you want to do and to get done what you desire to get done. And that might be even worse, you know? Yeah. And also there's the whole like, like he's this powerful guy that has everything, but this seemingly innocuous uh, high school rumor, you know, still had an effect on him. It's kind of almost uh, uh, highlights that like basically it's an anti-bullying message (laughs) (laughs) well well, no it's more to that point what i was saying earlier is that once again just because he's so wealthy and seemingly has all the time in the world on his hands he doesn't have the the conflict or the everyday struggles that would make him forget about uh you know all he he has nothing else to do but to sit there and brood and miss his sister and come up with very elaborate revenge plans (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I mean, so something that's really interesting, and we actually just briefly, briefly, briefly mentioned it, I think, on the last podcast, but something that Freud talks about in relation to trauma is is something that a lot of people miss. Because a lot of people think that trauma is just like this childhood thing that happened. And because we're carrying our objective experience of that traumatic event with us for our whole lives, it affects us in the present. But that's not it, actually. It's a little different than that. What Freud was, what he does say is that we don't actually have a clear memory of the objective circumstance as it happened in itself, but rather the present is always informing the past experience or the past memory of the traumatic event. And then simultaneously, that means that our refracted uh, through the present experience of the traumatic event then affects us differently in the present because we're always transforming both the present and the experience of the traumatic event through the present um, as they're, they're, they're morphing each other. So what you get with Wu Jin is you don't get necessarily this like absolutely this rumor as it can be perfectly relayed in an absolutely objective scientific way is what caused her to kill herself. But rather, like you just said, Jared, he's just stewing and brooding over this traumatic event. But through the 15 years or 20 years or however long it's been, he's also transforming the traumatic event as his own resentment builds in the present as he's pondering and brooding on that traumatic event. And so then what you get is this weird, strange complication of the of the present uh, as experienced through the traumatic event as the traumatic event is then experienced through the present, if that makes sense. It Perfectly. Does. So the last thing I want to ask you guys <clears throat> is... One of the things that always struck me as really unique about this film in the context of revenge stories in general is that unlike the Count of Monte Cristo, we, the audience and the protagonist, are aware of why he was imprisoned. Or I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. So in the Count of Monte Cristo, the protagonist is unaware of what it, why he was imprisoned, but the audience is aware but in Old Boy, the audience is just as clueless as the protagonist. Can you guys think of any other revenge stories that do that? Because I always thought that this was a really unique element to this movie. Rolling r- Rolling Thunder. That would be one. That's a good... Uh, oh, uh, Memento. That's another revenge one that you don't know till the end, right? 
kind of <clears throat> well, you know why he's person. seeking revenge. He's seeking revenge because somebody killed his wife. Yeah. But really, that's not why he's seeking revenge. He's seeking revenge because he's manipulated. I mean, himself, I guess he is yeah. ultimately, but he's manipulating himself. So, But it's, you're right. It's not the same. Like, this is pure, we're all fucking lost. We're all, like, in it. It's almost like a detective story, you know? We're like, fuck, man. Why? Why is? What is it? Because uh, Wu Jin makes it clear. It's not the what, right? It's the why. Like, you don't want to right. know who. It's not about the what. It's not the who, but it's the why. And if you don't find that why, then you won't be satisfied. Even when when um, Desu is, like, he has Wu Jin in his hands and he could kill him. But he's like, you don't want to fucking do that. He's like, because you want to know why I'm doing all this to you. And it's like, oh, yeah. And that goes Which, back by to the what way, you were saying about it, truth. Yeah, yeah. If I was in that position, I would have fucking killed his ass. And then I would have <laughs> started my investigation right after that. I'd go, okay, what's this guy's name? I'm going to go find out why he killed, why he did all this. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then, and then <laughs> you would have never known that you were banging your daughter all this time. And you would well, have never known. But, but that's the good thing. Yet. Yeah, and that's he, a good that, thing. That, that, that's what he ultimately wants at the end anyway. <laughs> I guess it, and you'd still have a tongue, right? And right. you'd still have a tongue. Which is another What's, interesting thing too, because remember, uh, the in some ways, part of the theme of why Desu is being punished is because uh, Wujin says you talk too much, right? And so the, the cutting off the tongue is really interesting because it's sort of like a symbolic act that he's saying like, see, see, I won't talk anymore. Does that make up for the fact that my tongue is what it is that caused you all of this heartache? And the question is, is if there's ever been a break, like if there's ever been a tear in the fabric of like supposed harmony, like if things are going well and then some there's, there's a violation, can you ever repair that? So like does cutting off your tongue, does revenge or punitive justice or retribution, does that ever even the scales? And the film, I think, ultimately really kind of says, no, it doesn't even the scales because Wu Jin fucking kills himself. I mean, that's not equal. Like another fucking life is lost prematurely. Uh, Desu's tongue is cut off and then he ends up like sleeping with his daughter again for the rest of his life. But we know that that's not like, it's not bringing things back to peace. There is no possibility once the sever has been created. Yeah, Absolutely. All right, let's go into the mailbag. We're running a little low on time right now, so we're just going to answer one question. Ryan, take it away. All right, this one's from Joshua, and it's uh, referencing our Boss Baby podcast, the very popular Boss Baby podcast. Hello, Wisecrack. Um, I just want to point out that during the podcast, your team seems confused as to why the parent is telling the extrapolated story and how he is getting the ideas from a photo album. I'd like to suggest that he is using the story merely as an allegory for the fears he had when his parents were a new child, using the capitalistic ideals and morals to mirror his childish ideas of a finite amount of love. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of oh, cool hold on. Yeah, I'm sorry, he goes, I'm shocked that this wasn't picked up on by you guys. <laughs> I mean that as a compliment to your brilliance. It's a great way for the movie <laughs> to show the contrast of how Timothy felt about the idea of a brother before he went to bed and how that's changed when his dream of having an awesome boss baby sways his position. So what do y'all think about that? I mean, before before he said, I'm shocked that we didn't pick it up, um, I was going to say, man, great question. I kind of was hoping that's what we were getting at. but uh, Right. I was like, not, I thought we did not, mention that, but I guess maybe yeah, we not, weren't clear enough. Yeah, and I think that, that to explicitly say that it is the sort of fantasy that he's kind of projecting from his own uh, phobias and concerns is kind of what I think we were – what we did talk about a little bit, but uh, at least he explicitly laid it out more. And I think that's an interesting point. Yeah, I mean, it's so crazy that we were able to get this much, mi much, much mileage on like a digital animated film, you know? Yeah, <laughs> speaking of which, we're going to have to do a shitty movie again soon. 
Yeah, because I'm, I'm because down. people seem to really like the Boss Baby one. So we got to rack our brain. So yeah, send us some requests of other. I don't want to say shitty movies because I did like parts of Boss Baby, but you know we we've had a bit of a role of you know Wolf of Wall Street, Old Boy, Next Videodrome. These are fucking movies that we love. So you know we should get outside of our comfort zone and do some other things. But to the point of the photo album, the point I was trying to make is not not why he was using it, but just the fact that like. I, I unless the photo album is full of photoshopped fake pictures, like how would real life photos aid in the story of telling what is essentially an exacerbated fantasy or an exaggerated fantasy? That's the point I was trying to make. It just doesn't right. make sense to show real life photos of your brother who I guess we're meant to assume doesn't actually wear a suit and carry around a briefcase when he's a baby. You know, use that to aid in the storytelling of a story about a briefcase-wielding, suit-wearing baby. That That's the only point I was trying to make. Is it just, that's weird. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's good insight, though, man. I, I love I love being a part of this kind of dialogue. It's so great that people can keep writing in about that. Keep sending stuff more. Keep sending you know? stuff. Movies at wisecrack.co or .me. All right, well, that's going to wrap it up for today. I want to thank my co-hosts, Ryan and Austin, for joining me today to talk about one of the gems of Korean cinema or cinema in general. Just want to remind you guys that next week we'll be tackling David Cronenberg's classic Videodrome. For those of you who uh, listen to our Rick and Morty podcast, there are a lot of David Cronenberg allusions. So if you want to understand one of your favorite shows a little bit better, tune into this next podcast because we're going to be breaking down the conventions of body horror and how that manifests itself in our culture and uh, maybe even Rick and Morty. So I also want to remind you guys, please, uh, if you have a couple seconds, leave us a review on iTunes. It helps us so much. It helps keep us going. It means the world to us. Five stars would, of course, be uh, preferred. Uh, so if you have a second, that would be great. <clears throat> also want to remind you guys about the other podcasts. So we have the Rick and Morty podcast. Next week, we're very excited to announce that we are interviewing our first writer for Rick and Morty, Brian Weissall, who is actually about to launch his very own show, uh, called Hot Street, so uh, we're excited to talk to him mostly about Rick and Morty, but also about how it feels to have his own show for the first time. Uh, so be sure to check in for that. We also have our South Park podcast going and our Thug Notes Get Lit podcast going, so check those out. Leave those five stars. Everything that makes us super happy. So uh, that's it for today. want to thank uh, Ryan and Austin once again, and we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody. Goodbye from Hollywood, California.